Thank you, Lita. Thank you, Paulus. Thank you, Danny. Um, thank you, Steve. As we continue to worship the Lord together this morning and go into his word, would you turn to James chapter 4? James, um, also known as Jacob, Jacob actually, was the half-brother of Jesus, we'll remember. He was a pillar in the early church in Jerusalem, and he left us a legacy of wisdom condensed into this short and powerful letter that we call James. The practical wisdom of James is heavily influenced by two primary sources. One is the teaching of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. It's appropriate that we already heard from that this morning. And the other is the Old Testament book of Proverbs, which James quotes from quite a bit. The book of James has been called by one person a, beautif a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who want to follow Jesus. And that's sort of what it is. So far in James, we have learned sporadically as we've been in James since last fall. We've learned that suffering is actually a gift from God. We've learned that we, as followers of Christ, have the power to resist sin. We learned about favoritism versus love, dead faith versus genuine faith that always seeks to obey. We learned about the power of the tongue, how our words reveal what we really believe. We talked last time about worldly wisdom versus true wisdom from above. Wisdom that's pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Today, we come to James chapter 4, and this starts in an interesting way. Um, he doesn't, James doesn't use the normal term of endearment that he often uses when he switches subjects in his letter. He usually says, my brothers, my brethren. Here he jumps right into some biting rhetorical questions. He does have some names for his audience that we're going to hear this morning, but they're not brethren. He uses the words adulteresses, sinners. He calls his audience double-minded. We're going to see this morning from our text that passions and pride divide and humility heals. Why don't you stand with me and let's read together James chapter 4, the first 10 verses. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Gracious Father, thank you um, this morning for your word. And we would just pray as we uh, gather together and study it that you would open our hearts um, to what your spirit has for us this morning. You'd open our minds to understand what James is saying, and you would convict us and help us to apply it to our lives. Thank you um, for your word. Thank you for your 
church. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. First thing that we can pull out from James, first 10 verses this morning, I want us to see that if we pursue comfort, we won't find it. If you pursue comfort, you probably won't find it. But everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. What's the source and the cause of the conflict and the fighting that James is talking about here? Primarily within the church, if you put this in context. Where does it come from? He says, is, not your pleasure, is it not your pleasures that wage war in your members? My translation says pleasures. Your translation might say passion or lusts. The word here is the word that we get the English word hedonism from. The idea that pursuing the most pleasure, the most comfort, this is how we should live, right? Minimize pain, maximize pleasure, get as much pleasure as we can. That's this philosophy of hedonism. Yet our pleasures are waging war in our members in James chapter 4, literally in our limbs, in our body. You might remember back to James chapter 1 where James talked about the source of temptation. He called the source of temptation the desires in our heart. And then desire can lead to temptation, which can lead to sin, which can lead to death. Not necessarily, but it can, that downward spiral in James 1. In James 4 here, he's using a different word to talk about the source of our conflicts. He could have just said sin, but he's trying to be more specific. Pleasure, I think, is a satisfied desire, right? Doesn't that make sense? If something's enjoyable, if it's a pleasure, that's a desire that we had that's satisfied. I want to, just in the beginning of this, stop for a second and thank God for his mercy and not always giving us everything that we want. Right? Just because we have a desire doesn't mean that the satisfaction of that desire is going to help us in any way. You ever consider that when you don't get something that you want, it's God being merciful to you? You ever think about that, like in the moment? That's hard to do. Unless you're a parent, maybe, you can think of probably a thousand trivial examples of how what you want is not what's best for you, right? Just think about your kids. Cake for dinner, motorized vehicles at age four, cattle for pets, and that's just one of my kids who wants all those things. You can guess which one if you know my kids. Sometimes getting what we want is actually the worst possible thing for us. Church, I think we can take away from James this morning that we should consider our desire for pleasure as a liability. We should be suspicious because these pleasures are what wage war in our limbs. They're the source of conflict in us, James is telling us. When our desires are satisfied, especially in something, anything besides God, we should be suspicious. Right? Just be on alert. There's a guy named Neil Postman who wrote a book in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. This book was about American culture. Postman, in 85, compared two very famous dystopian novelists. You've probably heard of both of these novels written in the 20th century, one in the 1960s, one in the 1930s. They were both prophetic for the way that they predicted the ways that Western culture was going to fall and was going astray. George Orwell wrote 1984, good book. He warned that um, our culture would be overcome by a malevolent collective that would redefine words and ban books and do all sorts of things, totalitarian things, and eventually they would directly use pain to control people. 
a variety of ways, but the point is, that's what totalitarian institutions tend to do. He predicted some of the ways he saw this coming in the West. Well, in 1984, came and went, and a lot of people were glad that it hadn't gotten that bad yet, and that's why this guy, Postman, wrote this book in 1985. He said that we actually probably overlooked something. There's another novel written by a guy named Otis Huxley in the 30s. That's called Brave New World. And Huxley said that it was actually pleasure that was more manipulative than pain. Trivializing our culture as, it, as we become preoccupied with personal pleasure above everything else. Postman said Huxley basically had it right. Pleasure's a bigger threat than pain. And he prophesied a bunch of stuff about American culture. He said that our pursuit of trivial pleasures and a passive embrace of media consumption would empty society of any and all meaning. It would enslave people rather than free people. Postman said all this in the 1980s. He was not a Christian. He died in 2003 before there was even social media. How much has this culture of amusement affected the church? Postman, who again wasn't a believer, was a professor at some New York university. He said, there's a quote from him, he said, I believe I'm not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it's delivered as easy and amusing, it's another kind of religion altogether. I could give you examples here of ways that some people paint Christianity as, as amusing and as easy, but I don't think I need to do that. I think you'd be familiar with many of these examples. And fortunately, because we're in James this morning, I don't think studying James makes Christianity look too easy. It doesn't for me, anyway. So the point here, be suspicious of satisfied desires. Be on alert when we're the most comfortable. But then James goes on in verse 2, to talk about unsatisfied desires being the problem. Verse 2, you lust or desire. It's another translation for that word. And you don't have, so you commit murder. You envy and you cannot have, see so a fight. Now, was literal murder going on in the early church? I'm, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I think this is a hyperbolic statement about sin. Like when John says in 1 John 3, he says, everyone who hates his fellow Christian is a murderer. Also, Jesus does something similar in Matthew 5 when he compares anger to murder. Next, you do not have because you do not ask. So I just need to pray for that thing I want, and I'm going to get it, right? Like that fishing boat, or that new car, or that new job, or whatever. Fill in the blank for yourself. No, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures on yourself. Notice with me in here how prayer is important here to resolving conflict. This conflict he's talking about starts off as something in here and it spills out into how we interact with other people. Right? Prayer is key to solving any conflict. But selfish prayer is not going to cut it. It's got to be the right kind of prayer. can't be centered on you. should be centered on God. Newsflash, you're selfish. I am too, a little bit sometimes. You ever notice how much easier it is to identify selfishness in someone else than it is in yourself? I don't know, why does that usually offend me so much when I see it in other people? Probably because I'm a selfish jerk half the time too. In other sort of insidious way, this can damage our prayer lives, this whole downward spiral here. You know, I think 
that probably we know that sometimes our prayers can be self-centered if, we, if we're thinking about what we're praying for. Maybe we're the kind of Christian who still spends most of our time pursuing pleasures and comfort that the world has to offer. But we know enough to know that you can't pray for these things, not directly. It's usually inappropriate to do that, so that makes us more reluctant to pray. So we play, pray less, or not at all, cutting ourselves off from the throne of grace, the very solution to this whole conundrum that we have. That's a horrible downward spiral. That's a tragedy. So while pursuing selfish pleasures and comfort, that comes naturally to all of us. It's not what's best for us. Hedonism as a philosophy, as a way of life, is, doesn't work. First, there was a, I was thinking of ways to try to summarize this, and two quick ones came to mind. There was a philosopher named John McMurray, a Scottish guy, had a gift for saying things briefly. He said, the best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. Good biblical example of this, I think, would be the life of Solomon, right? Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was son of a king, king, had everything the world had to offer, indulged himself in everything the world had to offer, and what did he walk away with at the end of all that? What did he call it? He called it a folly. He called it futile. He called it a vapor. All this stuff, the best, just a vapor. Okay, so that's the first thing. It doesn't work. It leaves you empty. And the second thing is, the pursuit of selfish pleasures at the heart of everything that is wrong with us, according to scripture, right? It just is. James is making that point here, and he's making it to a Christian audience. Remember uh, Luke chapter 8, parable of the sower. We read about the seed that fell among the thorns. That seed was choked with worries and riches and the pleasures of life, and it can't bring any fruit to maturity. That's a wasted life. You can get into the details and argue about whether that person is saved or not. The point is it's a wasted life. Paul in Titus 3 talks about how we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Our natural desires, whether they're unfulfilled, leading to frustration and emptiness, or they're fulfilled, leading to empty pleasures, vacuous prayer lives, we have to view them with suspicion, these pleasures. They certainly can't be our goal as a follower of Christ, right? We shouldn't be seeking to please ourselves or to pursue comfort. Pursue it, you're probably not going to get it. If you do, it's going to be temporarily, temporary. It's probably going to leave you wanting. But ask God for the right things. Pray in the right way. Get outside of yourself. God loves to give his children good gifts. Quote from earlier in James. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Right. So James goes on to paint this picture more starkly in verses 4 and 5. James is saying that life is a battle. You need to pick sides. James says you have to pick sides because no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. We've already read here in these short few opening verses about quarrels and conflicts and pleasures waging war. There's this inner battle that I mentioned, right? It's in here somehow, and it spills out and affects everything around us. James is now telling the church, the early church, that they shouldn't be worldly. And he does so by giving this stark either-or choice. If we want the world, we reject God, he says. 
Now, the world, of course, doesn't refer to people in the world whom we know God loves. It refers to the world system. The things of the world that seek to draw us away from our commitment to the God. That's what he means by world here. You know, as an aside, one of my personal pet peeves are false dichotomies. You know what a false dichotomy is? doesn't matter because I'm going to tell you. A false dichotomy is something that asserts that there's two mutually exclusive opposites, right? All the possibilities fall into these two buckets. They cover all the possibilities, and they're mutually exclusive, either this one or that one. There's a classic false dichotomy or false dilemma in philosophy called Euthyphro's Dilemma. Um, this comes way back from Plato thousands of years ago. Plato, in one of his dialogues, he writes about this dialogue between Socrates and this guy named Euthyphro. And Socrates asks Euthyphro, do the gods will something because it is good or is something good because God wills it? This is said to be a dilemma. Modern versions of this dilemma are used as arguments against Christians who believe that goodness and moral value can be known and they're grounded in God's will. So, does God say thou shalt not murder because murder is wrong? Or is it wrong because God says so? If murder is already wrong before God says it, this implies a standard outside of God, right? Which you should see as a problem. But if it's only wrong because God says it's wrong, it sort of makes right and wrong seem kind of arbitrary, especially to a non-believer who doesn't know the Lord. The solution to this dilemma lies in the fact that Plato overlooked a third option, something that doesn't actually fall into two categories. There's often a third option. Not always, but there often is. And in this case, in Euthyphro's dilemma, the solution is that it's not the case that God wills something because it's good by some other standard, or that something is good just because he wills it. Rather, God wills something because he is good. That's the third option. God's own nature determines what is good. His will is not arbitrary. His commandments necessarily reflect his nature, and he himself is good. God is love. This is the solution to that classic example of a false dichotomy. You might be familiar with other false dichotomies. I mean, I see them every day, but a couple of examples from our modern context, maybe Democrat or Republican. Maybe vote for this candidate or you hate the environment or some other thing. Speak out for this candidate or you're not really a Christian. How about this one? You need to affirm or celebrate each person's self-understanding of their identity or you are literally denying their existence. One of those two things, nothing else. How about teach Marxian conflict theory in schools, or you're a racist? One of those two things. List of false dichotomies never ends. Those are just a few of my favorites. I've never been a fan of false dichotomies. I can't help but see them all over the place. Could you imagine for a second how annoying it would be being married to me? <laughs> Luke, are you going to take Zoe to violin practice, or am I? Why are you throwing these false dichotomies at me? How about grandpa and grandma could do it. We could both go. Right. I don't actually do that, do I? I do. But not all dichotomies are false ones, right? And when we see a dichotomy that is not a false dichotomy in scripture, a really important point is usually being made. Examples of true dichotomies, there's lots of these, but if you flip a coin, it's either gonna be heads or tails, with exceedingly rare exception, right? A person is either alive or dead, a person is either pregnant or not pregnant, male or female. There's lots of true dichotomies in science. There's lots of true dichotomies in scripture. And James 4, verse 4, is one of these. 
Jesus says in Mark 9, 40, whoever's not against us is for us. He's throwing down a dichotomy there, true one. In a different context, Jesus reverses that. He says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In a different place, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and he'll despise the other. You cannot love both God and wealth. In each context here, and they're different contexts, Jesus makes the point that neutrality is not an option in certain situations. This is one of those situations in James 4. He calls them adulteresses when he says this, because we're being unfaithful to God when we desire the world. How unfaithful are you, he's saying. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? Pick one. John said in 1 John 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Scripture here and elsewhere calls into question the idea of a lukewarm, hedonistic, carnal Christian. If that category is even a possibility, it's not a category we want to be in if we read Scripture and believe that it's God's word to us. Have you ever considered, church, that even as a believer you can make yourself an enemy of God? basically what this text says by desiring friendship with the world. James says, pick a side. Jesus in Revelation 3 says to the church at Laodicea, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's what he says. How do we avoid being lukewarm believers? It's not easy. It's not even possible by our own power. Right? Verse 5, probably, not probably, verse 5 is the hardest verse to translate into all of James. James seems to quote something here in this verse, but the translation is really tricky and really difficult. He doesn't actually quote scripture until verse 6, which we'll get to in a second. Translation is confusing because spirit here can either refer to the human spirit or to the holy spirit and then the subject and then is spirit the subject or the object of the verb yearns here it can be translated different ways depending on the translation you're reading right now you might read that the human spirit was means that we have if human spirit was meant by spirit in verse five then we have that god is yearning jealously over the plight of our spirit inside of us that's kind of how esv translates this more or less or that our human spirit yearning in an envious way. Our spirit's doing the yearning. That's how NIV translates it and a couple others. The one I like the best, maybe it's the best, I don't know, um, is NAS translation for this particular verse. This has God jealously desiring the Holy Spirit that he put inside of us. Right? This could be a direct quote from something that we don't have anymore, some sort of early letter Probably not, I don't think. I think this is better understood as just a paraphrase of what scripture in general teaches. A couple reasons for that. One, James's audience was super, really early, the earliest of Christians. These people were almost all Jews, if not exclusively Jewish, and they would have been familiar with how God's jealousy is expressed in the Old Testament. Um, if you want to jot down, you can jot a couple down. Exodus 20, verse 5, I'm a jealous God, God says. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 34, 14, the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. 
Zechariah 8.2. The Lord is exceedingly jealous for Zion. With great wrath, I'm jealous for her, God says. Okay, so that's the first point. God's a jealous God. That's taught in the scripture. And then second, just the importance of the indwelling Holy Spirit to, to teaching of the New Testament. Right After conversion, we get the counselor. We get the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. So, then verse 5 reads, God jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. This kind of makes, context, this kind of makes sense in the context of what's going on here, too, with this inner tur- turmoil. James is saying, pick a side. You can't have it both ways, God or the world. God gave us his spirit. His spirit lives inside of us. It grieves when we choose the world over him because we don't have to choose the world anymore. God is jealous for us to walk by the spirit that he put inside of us, not by the flesh. But we don't do this perfectly, and so we need verse 6. The center of our passage this morning is pretty cool, but he gives a greater, greater grace. I summarized it in our notes with a metaphor. Rivers of grace flow to the lowly. Rivers of grace flow to the lowly. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James quotes Proverbs 3.34 here. So a couple of weekends ago, uh, we were up in Colorado, and I was high up um, in the mountains trying to enjoy some of the snow while it was still there. And uh, it got warm, you know, mid-morning or so. And just the snow was melting, lots and lots of snow still up there. And then it just rushing off of cliffs and rocks and very dynamic water rushing all over the place. And that water was filling up streams, and those streams are going to bigger rivers, those bigger rivers ultimately dumping into the Rio Grande up there. And uh, about two weeks ago, I was also studying this section of James, and this just struck me as a great picture of what God's grace is, right? This flowing river. It's abundant. It overcomes any obstacle. It doesn't stop from the perspective of somebody sitting there looking at a river. It's never-ending. Grace like a river. That'd be a good song title, wouldn't it? I think it might be one. Like gravity causes flowing water to seek low places, God's grace naturally seeks the lowly and the humble. This is a universal principle, I think. The principle behind Proverbs 3.34. It's also other places in Scripture. It's why... Paul says in Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Same grace that Paul calls more than abundant in 1 Timothy. For daily need, there's daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there's overwhelming grace. When you need grace in your marriage because you realize that you've been a selfish jerk, there's grace for you. Maybe you need to forgive a selfish jerk, right? There's grace for that too. Maybe you've succumbed to the lies of the world that tell you that it's good and right to pursue comfort and pleasure above everything else, basically making you an enemy of God, according to our text this morning. He has a greater grace for you. Maybe you've got broken relationships in the body of Christ. Maybe you've been a little stubborn or hard-headed. There's grace for you. You know, I had a brother just recently um, come to me and apologize just for the tone of a conversation that we had you know, a little while prior to that. And praise God for the humility and the conviction that it takes to go, like, seek that kind of forgiveness and try to make things right. That spoke to me. 
Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Good prayer, right? He gives the greater grace. We don't just need a one-time infusion of grace at conversion. Like, we get it once and we have everything we need. He gives it to us continually. It's meant to never end like water flowing in a river. Whatever your situation or mine, he gives more grace for that situation. But there's a little stipulation in the text. If we remain proud, God doesn't only not force his grace on us, but he'll actively oppose us. He's opposed to the proud, it says, but gives grace to the humble. Look at the kind of person that Jesus blesses in the Beatitudes. We already heard some of this this morning from Steve. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I need the kind of grace that God gives to the humble. I think some of you need it too. The problem is, I don't know that I'm always humble. So James, what do I do? Here we go. Verses 7 to 10. James says, repent. If I had to summarize it in one word, it would be repent. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Repent. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted. God here is doing the exalting. We're doing the humbling. Now, God can humble us and does. That's not what this is talking about. This is about the Christian duty to self-humble. James launches just right into a bunch of commands here. These are all um, aorist imperative, uh, imperative. These are commands. There's a positive and negative aspect to most of these commands. Submit, resist. Submit, therefore, to God. Why? What's the therefore? Well, because he gives grace to the humble. Submit to him. Resist. This is a military word that he uses here. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. This word means to oppose or to stand against something like in a battle, in combat. How do you suppose we're supposed to resist the devil who exists and is smarter than you or I will ever be? Well, maybe it's by putting on the armor of God, right? Our war is not with flesh and blood, Ephesians 6. What are our weapons from this famous scripture passage? What are the weapons, you remember? Our weapons are truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit. And then that section in Ephesians ends with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Submit to God and you can resist the evil one. We have all the tools that we, that we need to make the enemy flee from us. That's not being arrogant, that's the truth. But it starts with submission to God. Verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Draw near to God and he'll... He'll draw near to you. This is actually pretty, pretty profound. Move towards God. He promises he's going to move towards you. Remember the experience of the prodigal son from his perspective. He recognized the error of his ways. He turned from the error of his ways, and he returned to his father, hoping to just be treated like a servant because he was 
starving because he messed up and squandered his whole inheritance. What did his father do? Luke 15, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, the son, his father saw him and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, you bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Draw near to God and he'll meet you more than halfway. A great way to draw near to God, again, is to pray. Pray early, pray often, pray well. How do we pray well? Don't pray selfish prayers. Pray God-centered prayers. We already talked about how, how prayer is critical um, towards dealing with conflict by dealing with the inner turmoil here. That's the root cause of all that conflict. God's spirit lives inside of us. He'll help us to win that battle. When we ask him for the right things, we have to ask him. There's a couple things required here that James addresses when we go into God's presence. And I was debating actually going back to some of the Old Testament ritual purity passages, but then I said, ah, there's just not time for that. And then Steve did it this morning, so it's perfect. We already talked about that. When he says in here, cleanse your hands, sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, these, the words he used there would have been directly recognized by the Jewish audience as referring to the Old Testament ritual purity. You don't just draw near to God casually. Double-minded literally means double-souled. He's referring to a divided allegiance. He does this other places in James 2 as well with the same word. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be, laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I thought the Christian life was supposed to be one of joy, right? Doesn't God want us to be happy? I think the point here, which Steve already partially made for us this morning, was that we can't really have the kind of joy that God gives without first having a proper sense of sorrow over our sin, right? This is how I think this applies to us as modern Christians. Yes, God is holy. We can only come into his presence because of his provision. But when, when we do, and when we're talking to him, when we're repenting to him, when we're turning from our sin and turning towards him, we're supposed to do it with a broken and contrite heart, right? Not casually. There's nothing casual about the sin that's inside of us. When we do that, we find what? We find unmerited favor. We find his grace. In addition to mercy, not giving us what we deserve, he's faithful, he's just, and he forgives us from sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness because of his son. So James' point here is to not take lightly the seriousness of sin, that's the point, and the magnitude of our need for a savior. Now, James' whole book, um, his whole letter, is written to a Christian audience. He's telling us to stop pleasing yourself. This is what causes all the fighting. Go to God in prayer. Seek his will. Reject worldliness. Listen to the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. God's grace is always enough. Repent often and draw near to God. Humble yourself, and he will exalt you. The most important true dichotomy taught in all of Scripture is one that James assumes, and that is in Christ and alive or on your own and dead in your sin. These are two categories. They're mutually exclusive. They're jointly exhaustive. It's one of these two options. James assumes it. 
James's exhortations here also closely, very closely, resemble the teachings of Jesus. That's why it's easy when you outline this to use the words of Jesus to frame what James is saying. Try to do that this morning in the notes. The second line of every one of those four points is a quote right out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus was not just talking to Christians, was he? He said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. When he said this, we can read in Luke 14, this happened in the middle of several parables he was teaching about the kingdom while he was dining at a Pharisee's house. Each of these parables was about the kingdom of God and who could get there. Jesus was talking about salvation, and he was talking to everybody about salvation. He said that everyone's invited, but you have to come in humility. He said, humble yourself, and he'll exalt you. He said, accept God's provision for your sin and for your rebellion, and follow me, the Messiah. God wants you to be saved. He wants all of us to be saved. He offers salvation as a free gift. If you don't know that, none of the stuff in James really applies to you yet. If you haven't experienced forgiveness, freedom, and the power of the Spirit inside you that helps you to fight evil, forces more powerful than you, if you haven't experienced that, then maybe it's because you don't know the Lord. If that's you, I'd encourage you to confess your need to him, to turn away from your selfishness and towards him. If you draw near to God in this way, he'll draw near to you because of his provision. What's holding you back? Why would you not want that? Okay, so you're a believer already. Let's not toy with grace by thinking we can get away with being carnal Christians, lukewarm Christians. This is James' challenge. This is James' gut punch this morning. It's, it's a wasted life, right? Whether maybe you're saved like an insurance policy would, would save you, maybe not. I don't know. It's not supposed to be clear, I don't think. But we don't have to sin anymore as believers. You have the spirit living inside of you. You do not have to sin anymore. And it's not because you have the power not to sin. It's because you have his power not to sin. This is true for all of us. It's a choice. Every time we sin post-conversion, we're making a choice. I want to finish this morning up by just reading the rest of Revelation 3, which I started reading earlier. Jesus speaking says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have acquired great wealth and need nothing, but do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Take my advice and buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you can become rich. Buy from me white clothing so that you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed. Buy eye salve to put on your eyes so you can see. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. I'll grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are uh, um, grateful this morning uh, for James's letter. Uh, we are grateful um, for the gut punch 
that it gives us. Um, we so often choose the world over you. We so often don't use the resources that you've given us, the resources that aren't inside of us. They come from you and live inside of us. We don't use those as much as we should, um, Lord. Forgive us. Thank you that your grace is so deep and so long and so never-ending. There's always an abundance of it. Um, Lord, we rely on that. It's a firm foundation. It'll never end. Uh, we thank you for making all this possible uh, because of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. We love you, Father. We pray all this in his name. Amen.